Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for The Recount with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and producer of our dope theme music. Over the past few weeks, we have been driving with the pedal to the metal down the street of culture to get to the intersection of politics and culture where this show likes to live. And if you haven't listened to those episodes with Brian Koppelman talking about his incredible Showtime series, Billions, Steve Van Zandt talking about his Rock and Roll Hall of Fame career in the E Street Band and on The Sopranos, and Ken Burns talking about his epic doc series on Muhammad Ali, I strongly advise you to hit pause right now and go back and give them all a listen. Three guys, so great. Our talks were so much fun. But with everything going on, and more pointedly not going on these days in Washington, D.C., with Joe Biden and Chuck and Nancy and their fractious crew of congressional Democrats, Mitch McConnell and his intransigent Republicans, plus Donald Trump effectively back on the campaign trail in Iowa over the weekend, Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg under the microscope and in the Klieg lights, and more, I thought it was time to take a hard turn back onto Politics Avenue and deal head-on with the craziness and dysfunction we've all been seeing. And as I was thinking about who to have on to help make sense of the madness, I kept coming back to an old pal of mine who happens to be one of the most astute, incisive, and perspective-laden political journalists I know, who also happens to have recently published a moving, illuminating, tear-jerking piece in The Atlantic on a topic close to both of our currently somewhat broken hearts, the deaths at roughly the same time this summer of our beloved dogs. And look, if you know me at all, you know one thing. Anyone who can talk bracingly about politics in one breath and movingly about canines in the next is my kind of guy. And that guy is the one and only John Dickerson. And the state of our nation is fragile and jittery. And we're all trying to figure out what the new things that give us direction and comfort are. But we're still surrounded by good human beings. We just have to pay attention to what they're doing and not what the people who are adding to this instability are doing. You probably know John Dickerson from the TV, from CBS News to be specific, where he's been working in various high-profile capacities for more than a decade as political director, chief Washington correspondent, moderator of Face the Nation, co-host of CBS This Morning, contributor to 60 Minutes, and most recently as a contributor to CBS Sunday Morning, chief political analyst and anchor of CBS News election coverage and political special reports. Wow! You might also know Dickerson as a prolific and prodigious pen. Covering the White House for Time Magazine in the 1990s, cranking out a steady stream of brilliant and clarifying pieces as chief political correspondent for Slate in the 2000s, and in his obviously ample free time, LOL, publishing three fantastic books that everyone should read. The first, On Her Trail, My Mother, Nancy Dickerson, TV News' First Woman Star. The second, Whistle Stop, My Favorite Stories from Presidential Campaign History. And the third and most recent, The Hardest Job in the World, the American presidency. John Dickerson and I have been running the same highways and byways for nearly three decades. We have spent an incalculable number of hours talking politics at campaign events and national party conventions, on buses and planes, in restaurants and bars, and across the table from each other in various TV studios. And I can, without hesitation or reservation, say that every one of those conversations has been an utter delight and made me immeasurably smarter. All of which is why, after having been queried by him regularly for several years on the set of Face the Nation, I would have thought it was time to turn the tables and put Dickerson through his paces on this show even before I read that piece in The Atlantic that I mentioned earlier about the death of his family's pooch, George. From the moment I read the headline, which I'll come back to in a moment, I knew that by the end I was going to wind up a puddle on the floor because, as some of you know, my wife Diana and I suffered the same kind of loss back in July when our elder Great Dane, the legendary Fife Dog, slipped this mortal coil and left us at once bereft 
and endlessly grateful to have had him as the leader of our pack for a glorious but fleeting few years. For anyone who's ever had a dog, Dickerson's piece is essential reading, and it's easily the most important topic we covered on today's show, so be sure to stick around all the way to the end to hear that discussion. By the way, the headline of the piece that I said I'd come back to later, every dog is a rescue dog, is what it said. And honest to God, true words were never spoken, because although it is often us humans who rescue our hounds at first, as time goes by, we all inevitably come to understand that it is in fact our dogs who rescue us, becoming our greatest refuge against the fires and floods of a merciless world filled with all too much hell and high water. Leader McConnell and Senate Republicans insisted they wanted a solution to the debt ceiling, but said Democrats must raise it alone by going through a drawn-out, convoluted, and risky reconciliation process. That was simply unacceptable to my caucus. And yesterday, Senate Republicans finally realized that their obstruction was not going to work. I thank, very much thank, my Democratic colleagues for our showing our unity in solving this Republican-manufactured crisis. Despite immense opposition from Leader McConnell and members of his conference, our caucus held together, and we've pulled our country back from the cliff's edge that Republicans tried to push us over. So that was the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer giving a speech at the end of last week, one that caused some consternation among some people. And uh, it's been a good place for us to start because the issue is pretty important, what's going to happen with the debt ceiling. And I can't imagine anybody better to start this conversation off with and continuing all the way through to the end with than uh, my friend John Dickerson, Lord of CBS News, political coverage. Uh, John, great to see you. And I want to talk about a lot of things with you today. Uh, and we're going to cover a lot of ground, past, present, future. But just starting with this, right? You know, Schumer's given that speech. It's like three minutes long. And you're watching through the whole thing, Joe Manchin, the moderate senator who's giving progressive senators and Congress people so much grief right now. Manchin sitting behind Schumer the entire time with his head in his hands and then gets up and storms off and is later reported to have said that Schumer's speech was, quote, fucking stupid. And everyone, you know, I mean, Mitt Romney from the Republican side, other moderate Democrats giving Schumer hell because, you know, he's got by Senate standards. And non-Trump standards, you know, you hear him say the word risky about nine times in three minutes and, you know, the Republican manufactured crisis and the cliff's edge and the Republicans tried to push us over and all that language, which is not usually the way that that senators and the well of the Senate talk about each other, especially when they're trying to make a deal with the other side. and They're going to need the other side to solve the problem. Uh, so I get everybody's upset at Schumer. I mean, I get that some people are. There's some number of them. You know, some people on the left, obviously not upset at all. But but I have to say, forget about the ideology of this, John, like and what people complain about and, and decorum in the Senate. I just like listen to him and I'm like, that's an accurate description, right, of what happened. I mean, maybe not politic, maybe not the way senators normally talk. But, you know, everything you just said there is entirely true. No, I mean, I, I think you're right. And also, if you look at what McConnell was trying to do and the larger strategy that Republicans are employing, is to make the Democrats look like they are in disarray, yeah. that they are responsible for the country's calamity, that they are the ones who both caused and are not solving the debt limit crisis. And oh, by the way, in addition to their political effort to make the Democrats look disunified and like they don't know what they're doing, the Democrats are giving people good evidence of that as they try to work out their difference between the infrastructure bill right. and the Build Back Better bill. So, I mean, you know, Schumer's got about four audiences there that he's trying to talk to. And most of those audiences, Manchin and Cinema are one of them, 
But the other audiences are the ones that want to hear him rallying Democrats and talking about democratic unity because there are so many other instances of democratic disunity. Yes, exactly right. And look, I mean, the debt ceiling, you and I have seen these things happen over many years, right? I mean, this is an unprecedented thing McConnell's doing. I try not to be incredulous often because I don't want to seem naive, but even by McConnell standards to say, we understand the stakes is the stability of the world economy, that the outcome could be catastrophic if we don't raise the debt ceiling. So we must raise the debt ceiling. However, not only will we not vote to raise the debt ceiling, even though we ran up the debt under Donald Trump, a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it, we're not just not going to vote for it. We're going to filibuster any, any democratic effort to do this. It just seems like the most both cynical and nihilistic approach to government you could possibly imagine. I can't actually think of anything that would be more cynical and nihilistic than that, other than actually setting a physical bomb off in the Capitol and trying to blame it on Chuck Schumer. Well, it's one thing to make the Democrats eat the vote, right. which they would have to do under normal reconciliation rules. Okay, all 50 Democrats have to eat this. You use that against them in the election. Fine. That itself has its own um, cynicism. Uh, cynicism, because, of course, as you probably quite rightly pointed out, this debt was run up under both administrations. The last one in particular added heavily to it. And Republicans who had spent so much time talking about debts and deficit were essentially mum under the Trump administration. In fact, he was a nominee who promised that he wouldn't take on the real drivers of debt mm -hmm. and that he was given the nomination and elected for it. So late stage um, care about the debt and deficit is its own also additional cynicism with something that's pretty important. But then to block the ability to do it just with 50 votes is extra. And to the extent that politicians are supposed to do things in campaigns to accumulate power, to enact their agenda, yeah. McConnell's operating in that fashion. But he operates within a body that he's written about, that he's talked about, in which you don't always drive to the maximum your ability to assert your power or your ability to win politically because you know you have to work tomorrow. That's supposed to be what the Senate is about. And McConnell is very crafty, but also in this instance, he does seem to have stepped over a line that used to exist in the Senate. McConnell is now getting trashed inside his caucus and by Donald Trump for having capitulated. I feel like the pressure on McConnell to not make any kind of deal, to not fold in December is going to be huge, which raises the actual risk that we could be headed for, you know, like economic Armageddon in December, which is something I normally don't think is ever, well, I like they'll figure it out, you know, but this time it looks a little different. It does look different for all the reasons you say, and that's just within the specific sort of lane of fiscal issues. And I should note, you know, I was saying that Schumer was talking to his base in his comments. A lot of what McConnell was doing was also management of his larger project, which is he's got to do some things that show his party he's fighting for the maximum advantage of the Republican Party because he's got a full-time ex-president saying that he's not operating in the interest of the Republican Party and that he should be dethroned. So, you know, McConnell's got issues outside of just the strict fighting over the debt ceiling. Let's just think about the Republicans here. So we were in Texas last week doing an episode just about Texas for the circus. And you got Greg Abbott, the governor, and Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor. They're in their second terms as governor and lieutenant governors, respectively. The lieutenant governor in Texas is unusually powerful because he also basically controls the state senate. And they have just pushed through this extraordinary array of very extreme right-wing legislation on abortion rights, on voting rights, on guns. And the country's kind of looking at Texas. You know, the action of the Republican Party is now at the state level, but they are all clearly operating on all of these fronts. They're operating to some extent under the leadership of an ex-president who has no powers. Donald Trump is still like in the catbird seat there. I bet the question down there is in a state that people have said is going to turn blue 
the demographic change is going to turn it blue for as long as you and I've been covering politics. People have been saying that. And yet the state is as red as ever. But the question that's being asked down there is, are they so extreme now that they're going to finally provoke the backlash? And I guess that's my question nationally. The Texas thing seems to me to be a perfect microcosm of what's going on in the Republican Party across the country. And I guess that is my question to you. Are we at the point now where the Republican policies and posture towards governing is so extreme and so geared just to the furthest right extremes of the Republican base that Republicans are a shrinking party that is now risking alienating the middle to such an extent that they can never govern again. Well, we're going to have to see where people turn out and how. And before I go back on that train of thought, I'm just struck by the description you gave of Texas. Remember in 2000, 99 and 2000, when you and I spent a lot of time in Texas, that George Bush was considered the new model for the Republican Party because he was working on education kind of a soft issue traditionally for Republicans and because he had shown that he could work with a Democratic lieutenant governor, you know, and was liberal on immigration. Yeah, right. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Quite so. So think about in 21 years, the difference in politics in Texas and what it has come to represent, because I think there are a lot of other states that are thinking, let us be like Texas. Yes. Try to be like Texas. And so in that sense, at the state level, do what is happening in Texas, a lot of which is driven by the marketplace in politics, particularly on the Republican side where ideological point scoring is the way you achieve success within your party, not achievements on the most pressing issues of the day. The larger question you raise, you know, it didn't work for Donald Trump. He was a one-term president because he ran the kind of politics that you're talking about, arguing basically that the base wasn't shrinking, that he could increase the base. And even though demographically the Republican voter is a smaller share of America, it could be a larger share of the electorate if he got them all to turn out. And he did get a lot of people to turn out and he made a little bit of inroads with Hispanics and African-Americans, but he's a singular case. Thank God. Yeah. But in the midterms, in the midterms, and this is obviously what's got Schumer worried and Pelosi and Biden too, you know, it could very well be the case that just being anti-Democrats, anti-woke, anti-liberal could be a sufficient turnout model for Republicans to take back both houses and at that point, Republicans are think that this is the way to go. Yeah. In addition to the fact that Donald Trump is setting the entry price for anybody who wants to run for president, whether he runs for president or not, the market he created and the attributes he displayed are the ones that you need to have, it seems to me at the moment, to try to be the nominee in that party. And that all is a kind of politics of the kind that you described with respect to Texas. Yeah. And it's interesting. We'll get to Joe Biden in a second, but you know, I ran into uh, someone that you and I spent a lot of time with at one point in our career, Carl Christian Rove on Friday. And and I I was talking to to Joe Strauss, the former Republican speaker of the Texas House of Representatives, who was a moderate and like a George Herbert Walker Bush style moderate who quit because he hated Dan Patrick. He fought the, the bathroom bill in 2017 and then quit his job basically because he thought the party had gotten too extreme. Both of them had the same analysis, which was what's going to happen in 2022. What's going to happen is we're not going to see the kind of numbers in 2022 turnout wise that we saw in 2018. And part of the reason for that is Trump is off the ballot and Biden is weak. And so for Democrats, for a better or work or a Democrat at the lieutenant governor's race to be able to win Texas, you're going to need to have like a big 2018 style blue wave of turnout. And you're not going to get that if the president of the United States, the sitting president is sitting at 43 or 44. It's the thing that I think Democrats, beyond all the wokeness and all that stuff, it's the thing that Democrats actually making them nervous about these midterms this far in advance is, you know, that 2018 result was dependent on 
a very particular midterm turnout engine named Donald Trump. Right. And Trump is still around and influential, but he's not president anymore. And that might be a big difference. And it's traditionally the case, as you know so well, that the midterms after a president is elected tend to go to the other party. So exactly. it would be historically the case. Yeah. And then Biden is not a sufficient president to, and nothing that's going to get through Congress is going to light up the turnout mechanism for Democrats either. Let me ask you one more question about Texas, and then I'll play a little bit more sound about another issue that popped up last week in the news. So the Texas abortion ban, uh, I will call it the abortion ban, the fetal heartbeat bill, whatever you want to call it, but effectively bans abortion in Texas, you know, got stayed by a federal court last week briefly and then got reinstated by another appeals court on Friday. The question I have is a political question, which goes to the United States Supreme Court and the politics of abortion, a thing that, you know, you and I have covered for the entirety of our lives. And there's always a lot of energy around it on both sides at the activist level because of the fact that everybody for most of our career, I think I'll ask you whether you agree with this assessment, because the fact that people regarded Roe as settled law in the end, it was kind of taken for granted. Bill Clinton's formulation that abortion should be safe, legal and rare, widely accepted across the country. I mean, just vast numbers of people who believe that that's true. And it meant that abortion did not end up being a voting issue in almost anywhere. Right. People raised money off it. You know, it was like, like generated a lot of uh, some energy and some extremism, but it didn't become a salient voting issue. I guess my question is whether you think there is something to the argument that if Roe actually goes, that this will suddenly become an issue of enormous political salience across America, because there is obviously a view that that is what will happen if Roe goes, in addition to the impact on women around the country, which is not to be understated, but there will be, it will transform this issue into a central American political issue in terms of how people vote, and particularly women. I think it has the potential to be a, a lot more influential and important than it has been. You know, I don't know if it becomes the issue, but I'm pretty sure it, it'll be a lot different in 22 than it was even before because of what you say in Texas. I mean, even though some abortion providers have started up again in the wake of these rulings, for so long, liberals, when they were trying to raise money, said, look, unless we hold the line, Roe could go away. And people might have said, OK, I agree with that. But whatever happens here... It's gotten close. I mean, basically, abortions ended in Texas when this was passed. And to the extent that it is allowed again in Texas, it's only because judges stepped in. Right. And who appoints judges? I mean, this is the left's sort of coming to a realization that the right figured out back in Reagan's term. It's not that the left has not cared about the yeah. Supreme Court, yeah. but it hasn't cared about it with the voting passion that, the right, that the right has. And you could imagine a lot of people saying, see, we told you. And the only thing that's standing in the way are judges. And so, you know, make sure our Senate candidates have enough money to run. So I think it might already be there as a salient and important issue in this next campaign. Also, by the way, for the reasons we were talking about earlier, which is there aren't a lot of other ways to get Democrats to go marching out the door and writing checks. True. All right. So here, let me play a little last, a little, another piece of sound here. Francis Haugen, who um, is now known as the Facebook whistleblower who, I mean, stunned the world in some ways, as there is a long history of people stunning the world on a program that you've been associated with in your life, John, 60 Minutes <laughs> at CBS, that iconic television program. This woman popped up last week on 60 Minutes out of the blue and dropped a big fat truth bomb on Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and then was in Congress the next day. This is what she said in part of her opening statement in that congressional testimony. And I want to talk a little about Facebook misinformation, disinformation in the future of our lives. But I'm here today because I believe Facebook's products harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy. The company's leadership knows how to make Facebook and Instagram safer, but won't make the necessary changes because they have put their astronomical profits before people. Congressional action is needed. 
They won't solve this crisis without your help. So this woman is an insider, you know, and she was setting this thing up for a long time. She had decided that she believed in the company for a long time and that she had seen now ample evidence that they are, you know, uh, use the word evil, evil, that this is a huge, profound social, cultural, political problem, Facebook itself and social media more generally. And that the thing that's summarized by that clip we played there is all of it. She's like, they won't change. All they care about is money. And the only way for us to save ourselves is to regulate the shit out of this thing. The hearing was striking, right? So here's my question about all this. You know, there's this moment right now where Zuckerberg's on the cover of Time magazine he used to work for, and that the headline says delete Facebook, right? And that has become amazingly a culturally really pervasive sentiment. And this is a company that has no defenders now. Like the yeah. left hates it for its reasons. The middle is very skeptical and suspicious of it. And the right hates it for another set of reasons. It doesn't happen very often when a company like Microsoft, say, gets broken up, although that got you know turned back. I covered that, wrote a book about it. It happens when all of a sudden you have no friends in Washington. There's nobody who wants to be standing up and defending you. And that is where they are right now. The thing is, they saw this coming. I think what's what's most important and interesting about this moment is that and I don't know that, that it'll last, is that what has been revealed is the importance of the architecture and the structure of the algorithms and the way in which they are used to make money for Facebook and make our politics and public square uglier by incentivizing the most caustic speech because it gets the most engagement. And it shows a way in which Facebook, unlike with the Russians and the interference with the election and Facebook could say, oh my gosh, they used our, our platform to do their evil things. In this case, they know exactly how the algorithm works and they know exactly how they were using it to maximize profit. It seems to me the only rescue here comes when Facebook designs some kind of solution to the problem that it's created. And they've done some of it. I mean, the way some of the coverage is, you'd think they've done nothing at all. They have done some things. If you spend time on Facebook and see misinformation peddled, you see the face ways in which Facebook has tried to combat it. But it's yeah. so late now. And they spent so much time basically either straight up misleading people or diverting people from the true harm that Facebook was causing. My final point would be the danger here is that everybody pays attention to Facebook. So Facebook is allowing people to get engaged in stuff that basically if people had better epistemological hygiene, they wouldn't get engaged in. They would know that if something feels good and reaffirms what you already believe, there's a really good chance that it's probably not true and that you need to do a little bit more work before you pass it along. Facebook can do all kinds of things, but I don't know that it can get at that problem. And the danger here is that everybody blames Facebook and we don't look to ourselves both as consumers and then, of course, in the job we do in helping people not get into these traps. I would say that if I'm ever asked to comment for a profile of John Dickerson, I'm going to say that his epistemological hygiene is exemplary. That's what I would say. <laughs> and that, that would be my, that'd be the only quote I'd offer on the record. Um, and that, that should maybe be your the title of your autobiography at some point. Um, sure. And then the subhead is 10 cent words used in a career. Yeah. Yes. Fabulous. I mean, look, here's the thing that I think is powerful about this is that the, the thing that caught my eye and caught my brain was the stuff about Instagram and the way in which it was leading to eating disorders and, and suicidal ideation among young girls. And that's the thing that like, it's not about politics. That's where you start to cut with the culture sure. is when parents start going, wait, I see my daughter 
who's not supposed to be on this thing, number one. And then, you know, you see Richard Blumenthal, not the most clued in guy in the world who had engaged in that insane discussion the other day where, oh, will you agree to cancel the Finsta program? The Finsta program. It's like, uh, Senator, that's not a real thing. Uh, that's the thing that kids do on their own. Like, we don't have a Finsta program. Anyway, but he, they ran their experiment. They signed up someone who's 13 year old and that person got force fed all kinds of links to driving them to things that encourage them to want to be insanely thin. And that is the kind of thing that parents who are not, who are like, this is not about politics, not about Donald Trump or Democrats or Washington or fake news or Russia or any of that shit. It's like my daughter is constantly trying to lose weight and it's not good for her. These guys are part of it. That's when you lose the battle. That's when you're vulnerable in, in the broader political and cultural realm. That's exactly right. I mean, when the poison is coming into the house in this way that you can't stop it. And once it's in, you can't get rid of it. Right. And, you know, the being fed information that encourages eating disorders is just one of the ways in which the virulent nature of sharing social information eats away at teenagers. I mean, so in other words, it's not just how you look and how thin you are. It's the entire diet of fear of missing out and the kind of self-curation. Every teenager goes through self-curation. That's what teenage life is. You're creating and trying on new identities. And there needs to be some kind of cartilage in that. There needs to be, you try on this identity and then you, you know, shift and you have that identity and, yeah. and you go through that figuring out who you are. But when it's all stamped down and there forever and everybody's looking at it at once, it creates all of these awful kinds of behaviors, which are, which are not as awful maybe as, uh, not maybe, that are not as awful as the most acute examples of what was talked about in these hearings, but it's yeah. still not great. And it creates a kind of inward looking condition that every teenager has to go through. You know, Diana, my wife and I don't have children and people often ask me whether I, I just don't like kids. And I say, you know, I like kids, but I couldn't eat a whole one. But the truth is we know a lot of people with kids. Every, a lot of our friends have kids. I have, I have God children, you know, and every parent I know is obsessed with the question of is the screen time a problem? They all think it's a problem and they're all trying to limit it and they all fail. And again, I say that when you move into an issue where you get close to 100% of agreement among people yeah. that there's a problem and it has nothing to do with whether you're a Republican. So one of the rare things in America now that's not about the red or blue divider, I mean, everything is one side of a culture war. There's no culture war over this. And that, again, if I'm Facebook, you know, as clueless as Congress is and as far behind on all, they're always behind on tech issues. They always are, are fighting the last war. All of that is true. And there's a reason why tech regulation often fails. But if I'm Facebook right now, I am concerned about without fundamental change, whether your dominance is tenable at this point, because they're getting into that place where it's a very dangerous territory. And the danger comes from Congress doing, you know, whatever Congress is going to do. Because I always wonder about people actually actively getting off of Facebook. I mean, a few people do it, but essentially the poll that they have been able to monetize is still there. And, you know, as a parent of teenagers, and they're, they're older now, we thought all the time about just the constant download of this information into their eyeballs, but you have to pick your battles. Yeah. And even though this is what makes it awful, is that you know it's not good when they're sitting there, their face illuminated by whatever they're scrolling through. But with kids, you, you have about 10 things that you're always negotiating over. Right. You can't go yeah. after all 10. <laughs> right. And is this the one you want to fight over? <laughs> so it's a tricky thing being a parent in this modern yeah. world. You can keep it as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break. We'll, get, we'll, get to, we'll talk about Biden and Trump on the other side. We're going to take a little break and, and pay some bills here on Hell and High Water. We're going to get back. I, John Dickerson, always a man, such a smart, you know, nice person. <laughs> That's an old-fashioned, like, 
newsweeky kind of like overview of stuff that's going on. And I like, I miss those kind of old fashioned things that we used to do in our business, but don't do so much anymore. And that's one of the things I want to talk about when we come back on the other side of the ads on Hell and High Water. And we're back with the one and only John Dickerson here on Hell and High Water talking about you know, politics, journalism, life, dogs, eventually, and everything. And John, I, I wanted to spend some time on your kind of insanely estimable career. Like when I first met you, you were just a punk, you know, writing for a dying news magazine at time. And then you moved to Slate, which seemed like a very kind of savvy move. I want to play a piece of sound though. Now that you're a television icon, I want to get one of the first Dickerson television appearances of all, which is a little Dickerson on one of the C-SPAN morning call-in shows back in 1997. Let's play that. Oh, no. In the Philadelphia Inquirer this morning, and you're talking about influence and pushing, top Senate fundraiser stands in path of campaign overhaul. This is by Gail Gibson, and she says in her article here, if any plans to change the way politicians raise and spend money is going to fly this year, it's first must squeeze past Mitch McConnell. Yes, Russ Feingold, the uh, senator from Wisconsin, calls him the Darth Vader of campaign finance reform. His, he is standing in the way of all of this. As you know, in the Senate, one senator can do an awful lot by filibustering reform, and it takes 60 votes to override him. And so far, the proponents of reform haven't been able to muster those 60 votes. So one man is uh, is really holding back the wave here. I know two things about that. One, Mitch McConnell was a pain in the ass, you know, back in 1997. Two, John Dickerson, your voice hasn't aged a day since then. And three, you sound a little tired there or gripped by ennui. Yeah. Yes. Well, if that was Washington Journal. Yes. Remember, you, have to, you just have to get up at the crack of dawn for Washington Journal on a weekend, I think. Yes. And so yeah. there's a very good chance that, uh, especially after working for a news weekly, you're tired by the end of the week. Correct. Plus, you're always on C-SPAN. At least back then, you were. You never know which direction you were going to get it from. And so uh, you're kind of always thinking about the next call that's going to come in about, you know, aliens who have, uh, you know, put too much fluoride in the water. hundred percent. The thing is like for a lot of us, that C-SPAN Washington Journal was like one of the first places that a lot of our friends and our generation, first time we ever really got on TV, because they would put anybody on it. If you had a credential of any kind, you didn't have to have any television skill. And they would sit there and you'd be on for hours and people would call and say the nuttiest shit in the world. I actually remember once being so tired and so having exhibiting such lack of control that I, a person was yelling at me from California. It's like six in the morning in Washington. So this person's up at three in the morning calling in to rant about something. And I just remember saying like, sir, I, I only have one thing to say to you. What the fuck are you doing up at this hour? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, go to sleep. <laughs> I mean, do you feel like you got your taste for TV there? I know you did TV before you even started magazines there, right? Like you had a little uh, television experience as a kid. Well, and your mom, of course, but you know, there's a lot of things to say here. Yeah. I mean, I would have never wanted to, I mean, in fact, I never had any plans to go into television at all, in part because I watched my mom's experience and also because, you know, I thought writing is what I loved. And so why would I ever change from that? And I mean, and I still write and still, yeah. you know, think there are only certain kinds of things you can say through writing that you can't on television. Sure. My first time ever on TV was on Court TV with Fred Grandy. Wow. The, the former network anchor who is the anchor of Court TV. And it was about the BCCI, Bank of Credit and Commerce International case that was in a Manhattan courtroom. This is when I was a reporter for Time in New York covering that story. Yeah. 
And I mean, I went on TV and my mouth instantly was filled with drywall dust. Mm. I mean, I could not separate the roof of my mouth from my tongue in order to push whatever few words I had going out. Oh my God, I was absolutely overwhelmed. And then basically followed the TV career that you probably did too, which is a lot of C-SPAN and then some, you know, sort of weekend MSNBC, Fox, and CNN, you know, like Saturday morning. And then after there, it was, I don't know. It's the sky was the limit from there. Yeah, exactly. Like (laughs) we could spend all day talking about this, but I I mean, you look, you you host a face the nation, one of the co-hosts at CBS this morning on 60 minutes that we discussed before. I mean, these are big jobs, like with storied histories at, at a big, important network that we'll talk about your mom in a little more detail in a second, but your mom had had been a big pioneer in television news and in political coverage as a woman in her day. As you sit now, you know, you've just kind of made another transition, right? You're back into it, into a slightly different mode. I want you to talk about that. And the only way to talk about it, I think, without having it be a whole episode of a podcast would be, you know, from 30,000 feet, what has it been like to go from someone who not only loved writing, but who in some ways like wrote, especially in your period of time at Slate with a kind of clarity and precision and illuminative quality that I always admired, even when I didn't want to for competitive reasons to then suddenly be in these very high profile positions where it's about a lot of things other than, you know, the things that we most value where it's like in those pieces, it's like, how smart can I be? How many new insights can I bring? How can I balance all of the things that I want to balance and and make this thing that's not meant for mass network audience consumption. I'm trying to write to smart people who want to understand politics. That was the best of the stuff you did as a writer. And all of a sudden you're now having to communicate to and all the compromises involved in trying to communicate about politics to a much larger, more general interest audience. Just, I guess, I talk about that transition as much as anything else. It's tough. And also you can't have the words sit still and really, um, you know, once they come out of your mouth, they're gone and they can be sheared off and misunderstood. And the way you explain things, which is at the base of what we do, has to change a lot. So it's taken me a long time to learn how to use television in a way that gets at those issues. I mean, the way I switched from writing to television was through Face the Nation. And that was at its heart about asking questions, which is really what Time Magazine was. And Slate was a little bit less that because it was fast takes on, you know, so you did reporting, but not in the way you did for a Time Magazine piece. But basically it was I tried to approach Face the Nation the way we would any story you're working on, which is at the heart of those stories are questions. And what are the most important questions and what are the best ways to get those out into the world? And the challenge there that became really fun was the puzzle of how to try to get lawmakers who were increasingly not just spinning, but outright lying, how to get them to convey information in some fashion that was useful for people. And so I I saw similarities to the print job. It was just I wasn't doing the analysis and the writing part of that puzzle. Right. The fun part of being in 60 Minutes and now it's Sunday morning is that you can get back to telling stories, which is kind of what politics at its most. I mean, God, I don't need to tell you, you know, the writing you've done and the television you do about politics is about the story of politics. And it's not just the frivolous horse race. It's that we are a storytelling people. And the way we communicate these ideas is through story. And so I do political stories now, but I do a lot of other kinds of stories too, which is really the whole reason I got into this business was to tell stories. And that's been just a thrill because that is the writing piece, the interviewing piece, the images piece. I still do. I do more analysis now on politics than I did when I was at 60 Minutes. And that's a challenge because 
all the things that you and I grew up believing and understanding about politics are all changing. Yes. <laughs> and the question is, which of the ones are still true, yeah. but they're in a momentary bit of fibrillation? Or is it really different? And am I out there saying things that are just based on old understandings of things? Right. And that's not just, I don't want to look like an idiot. That's impossible. <laughs> but I don't want to... I don't want to look like an idiot who misinforms people, yeah, right? right? And so that's a really tricky yeah. place we are in now, which is true of both what I say on TV and, and what I try to write. The one of the things I get asked about this a lot, you know, as my career has gone more in the direction of television over time, from being a magazine writer to being a magazine book writer to doing some TV to doing a lot of TV, doing mostly TV, is like why that is. And I'm curious as to whether you have the same, at least one of your answers to because our careers have a little bit of similarity, at least in their paths. Is that like the thing I always hated about writing was the solitariness of it. Like that, that's the great challenge of it, but it's also the thing that I least liked about it. And I don't think I recognized how little I liked it until I started working more in television. Because the great thing about TV and also the challenge of it is that it's just a wholly collaborative thing. You can't do it on your own. There's no way to make a television show without a bunch of people all working together in a very complex, delicate, kind of choreographed balletic kind of way to make anything, whether it's live TV or tape TV. Right. And as I got older, I think I found that I enjoyed the collaborative element of it in a way that I didn't fully appreciate prior. And it also illuminated the costs of solitariness in a way that I hadn't appreciated previously. And so that's kind of, for me, at least a large part of the reason why I've drifted towards television is I just enjoy working on a team. Well, I think if you put your finger on something that's exactly right. And I see it in two different ways. One, I've done a podcast for 15 years with two other people. The building on ideas and, you know, bantering or being serious and kind of watching three people figure out something at the same time and being one of those three is a delight. Yeah. I mean, it's like any conversation. It's why I enjoy doing interviews either live that are longer form or the kind of conversation we're having where as a listener or a viewer, you can watch understanding be built in the space between the two people are talking. To me, that's one of my favorite things in the world. And as a participant in the audience, you get to join in that space with the two of us or the four of us or whatever the number is. Right. So that part is amazing. Then what I learned at first at Face the Nation, but really when I started to do stories for CBS This Morning and certainly for 60 Minutes and Sunday Morning, is when you can, A, there's your point about solitude, although the writing of solitude for TV is still as howling as it was for magazine writing. I mean, you have, because your producer is essentially your editor. Right. But when you have a cameraman who shoots amazing shots and gives you something in those shots that you can work with, or you have a producer who understands the way this is going to lay out on television, you suddenly have these people joining you who are stars in their field. And so it does two things. It makes your work better. And it makes you also think like, ah, I better write the hell out of this because I want to get to their level. And so I found it exactly what you're saying is the collaborative nature, although it can be, yeah. you know, it's not all rainbows and picnics. Yeah, yeah. yeah of course. But, uh, sure. but I really, I really learned that. And I, it was a complete surprise to me in the ways it sounds like that you're describing uh, the yeah. joy of that. Nothing's all rainbows and picnics. So, you know, as, as my longtime editor at New York Magazine, John Homans, uh, God rest his soul, used to say on frequent occasion, you know, it's a great big shit sandwich and we're all going to have to take a bite. Like that's just, that's the nature of life. So the question is, which shit sandwiches do you want to take a bite of and which do you not? And in some level, somebody who, step, who didn't know you, John, would step away and say, well, of course he's ended up in television because of his mom, who I've mentioned a couple of times now, Nancy Dickerson, who 
you know, it was a, a big figure in our, in the television business, you know, someone who was at CBS and was at NBC was, I think the first female correspondent at CBS news mm -hmm. and was, you know, the first person to talk to president Kennedy after his inauguration, like has like, was a storied career and especially an exemplary one for a lot of women journalists. You wrote a book about her. It was your first book. Your second book was about the campaign trail, the whistle stop, which is a historical book about the campaign trail. And I'm going to play a clip of your mom from 1987. We can hear both of you, what your mother sounded like. And she's talking about the campaign trail at the same time. And then we can do a little dissection of that on the other side. So let's play a little Nancy Dickerson here. Today, the medium is no longer the message. Television is politics. Uh, it's incredibly, you know, in the last election, uh, it was entirely different when we used to go out and cover candidates who would be going around and kissing babies and, as uh, LBJ used to say, pressing the flesh and all that. They don't bother to do that. Now, when you cover mm -hmm. a candidate today, you go to a television studio and cover the way he makes his television commercials. And that is a, a, a tremendous difference. And if he doesn't make good television commercials, chances are he will lose. So like, I love that clip partly because, I mean, in 1987, that was a cutting edge observation. And I, and I don't mean to put it down. I mean, I, she was explaining something that actually relates to something you said a second ago, which is, you know, the art of campaigning is always changing. She was talking about, it's not like what it was before. And then you have to be un to understand. She wasn't really decrying it. She was sort of just explaining that it was different. So I, there's a bunch of things to ask about this. One of which is, you know, you wrote this book about your mom called On Her Trail. It's a book that portrays a complex relationship between you and her. And I want you to talk about that and also fold it into this sort of the insights that she had that you could, even despite some of the complexities of the relationship, some of the insights she had that seem to echo things you're now saying, like you're, <laughs> no matter how complicated your relationship is with your parents, you end up being their kid. And, and sure. so I'm, I just want you to riff on your mom a little bit here. Sure. Thank you for asking. So she died 24 years ago, which is important because the career that she had all happened kind of, I wasn't either alive or old enough to know what was going on. She had me when she was 42 and then NBC didn't renew her contract in 1973. I was only five years old. So I didn't see, and the book is really about when she died being the custodian of all of her materials from her journals when she was a little girl of eight years old, all the way through her life. I mean, all her journals, which is a quite a thing for a son to read through. Yeah. And my relationship with her had been I was no picnic, speaking of picnics, as a kid. My parents were divorced when I was 13. She had gone through this public collapse of her career. She was probably one of the most famous women in America for a long time. Then NBC didn't think she was worth renewing her contract. And so she was off on her own. There weren't 100 other cable channels she could have gone to. It's one of the sadnesses of her career that she would have, uh, you know, had she not gotten sick and, and died. I mean, she would have she would have been on TV after she left NBC. She would have been on MSNBC. She would have been on CNN. She would have had lots of places to go. Sure. So her career was, was, she was scratching to try and make a living. My parents were not only divorcing, but there was uh, wasn't a lot of money around. Um, so she was trying to make a living in a business that did not value women, period, but also didn't value women who were in their 50s. Right. So that in her life was going on while I was being a charming adolescent. So we were very, we had a rough relationship. I moved out and went and lived with my dad when I was 14. Fortunately, I, so I came to New York to work as a secretary at Time Inc. and kind of was adjacent to the business she had been in, much to my surprise. Anyway, then I started being around a newsroom and got totally hooked. And our relationship repaired itself over the course of those years. She was in New York as well. And so between kind of 1990, 
1996, when she got sick, we became uh, friends again and, and, and quite close. Yeah. And in looking back on her career, and particularly every minute I get older, I have a lot more empathy than I did certainly when I was a teenager. And she was a pretty amazing person, particularly when now I, that I know what she was going through personally. Yeah. As far as the politics are concerned, it's funny. She came in with John Kennedy, essentially. She was yeah. a Roman Catholic yeah. when he was, and that suddenly became a cool thing. As the first television president, really, and as the first glamour president, what she talks about in 1987 is the result, basically, of Kennedy's success. Yes, 100%. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. she's she is talking about something that is a part of her ascension, in a way. And it's funny to think about the television commercials she's talking about in 1987. Well, Dukakis, you could argue, either wounds his campaign or ends it yeah. by basically the, the tank moment, which is creating a television moment. It's yeah. not pressing the flesh. It's creating a moment. Yeah. And that moment, which was made entirely created for the cameras, ends up being the one that the Bush campaign uses. Now, there's a lot of other things that happened in that campaign. Sure, sure. But it's a television moment that was a part of that campaign. And now, of course, we see it even worse. Although it's funny, when you and I covered John McCain, that was a kind of presidential campaign that was similar to the kind she was pining for in 1987. Yes, right. Which is what made it singular and different. We have to take one more break here and then we'll get back on the other side. But I, I do, I want to ask you this, this kind of it kind of plays into this theme that we've raised here that your, your mother was raising there and that you've raised already. You know, I resist nostalgia. I mean, I love telling old stories. I'll tell stories about my career and other people's careers that people I admire all night long. I love those stories. Love history. Love it. You know, the false nostalgia of like, things were so great back then and things suck now is not really my jam. I'm into the new and trying to see how it's changing. And I'm curious as you watch I still, you know, because of the circus and other things, I, I cover campaigns. I'm out in the world, but it's different. You know, it's really different. And you see a lot of very good political journalists, young political journalists who like basically report campaigns without ever leaving the house yeah. on their social media, you know, DMing all day long. And there is some part of me that I have a reflexive thing that I try to resist generally, which is, man, like this is how you should be doing this. This isn't the right way to do this. This doesn't feel like, I mean, I love the campaign trail and I know you do too. We've spent a lot of time in various places together doing it. Do you ever look at it like the way I do and sort of say, this is changing in a way that's bad, bad for the profession, bad for the democracy, bad for how we elect people, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, I do. And I'm, I'm right there with you on the false nostalgia and the trickiness of nostalgia. You know, here's a perfect example. I have, you know, probably 80% of the credentials that I've collected all the way since 1992. Me too. I have a box right over here. I could pull them out yeah. at, any, at any moment here. Yeah, yeah. Somebody can go on my Instagram page and see how many credentials there are. Sure. Like you, I spent a lot of time on the road. And I totally missed that the Republican Party of evangelical voters who I had spent so much time talking to and talking to about their faith and the importance of morality and the and upright standards of their candidates yep. would nominate Donald Trump. Totally. That Donald Trump would win the South Carolina primary in a highly evangelical state. Fucking crazy. I missed that. In other words, I saw it all. I reported on it all. Yes. But I thought, you know what? All these people I've interviewed, hundreds of them in my life, covering John Ashcroft's presidential campaign in addition to all the others, they are not in the end going to go against those things that they spent so many hours telling me were the bedrock of their lives in picking a candidate who was so antithetical to everything that they had believed. So that is a way in which my time on the road completely misled, you. misled me. Yes. Having said that, I was at a Scott Walker event in 2015. Scott Walker was having his moment. This was even before his moment. And I'm there 
I think I'm in South Carolina and a guy in the back of the room I'm talking to doing what you're talking about, which is so important, talking to actual human beings about their lives, where you learn about their life and that affects your work. He said, you know, I I like Scott Walker, but boy, Trump says a lot of stuff. I'm really. And I thought, what? And this is the period where this is, I guess, June of 15. And everybody is saying the press shouldn't even cover Donald Trump. They shouldn't give him any coverage at all. And I'm picking it up among Republicans who are saying, you know, yeah, he's brash and all that, but he's saying something I believe, which really informed my thinking and my writing. And so I saw him coming and didn't see him coming because of that on the road stuff. You have to be out there doing it. And also from a policy perspective, it's not just about the horse race. I remember a woman when Hillary Clinton went to Tom Harkin's steak fry in Iowa I guess it would have been in 15, in the spring of 15, yep. she described getting her daughter's arm fixed at an emergency room because she didn't have insurance. Yeah, right. I mean, you want to bring the realities of health insurance home? Yeah. Listen to a mom talk about their daughter and not being able to get her arm fixed. You'll never think about it the same way again. And you can't do that by just reading Twitter. Totally. And, you know, I just remember I had the same experience up in New Hampshire in a focus group we did in June, July of 2015, and just sitting there in a room with a bunch of Republican Republican voters conducting a focus group, and there was not a single one of them who was interested in Jeb Bush, who was the front runner. And all of them were interested in Donald Trump. And most of them said things like, he's one of us. And I would say, he's one of you in what way? Do you have a gold toilet? Do you have a private jet? Do you fuck yeah. supermodels? Like, in which way? Well, no, no, he's just, he understands us. He gets us. And like the words blue collar billionaire would come out of their mouths and stuff. And it was like, wow, like there's something going on here. So yeah. we're going to take this break and I'll come back. We'll talk about Trump a little bit on the other side. And then we'll talk about George, which is really the only reason you're on the show. So I want to talk about, <laughs> about, about your dearly departed dog. So let's take that break and we'll come back. John Dickerson on Hill and Highwater. And we are back. We left off talking about Donald Trump a second ago, and I want to come back to him, talk a little bit about Trump, maybe a tiny little bit about Biden, and then move on to the subject of most importance, which is John's dearly departed pooch, George. Um, I'm always resistant to play Donald Trump sound. And so today, although I cut some, I'm not going to, because we all know what he's doing. He's out there mm-hmm. peddling the big lie. He's gaslighting the country. He's whipping up his supporters. He went to Iowa last weekend, and, and everybody thinks now it's more likely than not that he's going to run for president again in 2024. And there's no one who doesn't think he's the prohibitive favorite of the Republican Party. If he doesn't drop dead or get jailed for some reason between now and then, that's, I think, the likeliest outcome. Here's John Dickerson, though, on November 7th. A little piece of video, a little piece of sound we'll play, commenting about the very early, this is early, the big lie was in its gestational phase right here on, on November 7th. And there's a prescient Dickerson Prescient in some ways, maybe unprecedented in others. Let's play this Dickerson comment from his coverage for CBS News on November 7th of 2020, the day Joe Biden was declared president of the United States. On major Republican lawmakers who they have a duty right now. Now, let a little time pass to accommodate the freshness of the news, accommodate the president's idiosyncrasies. But at some point, if the president continues to, to claim fraud and that this is a stolen election, he will be burning Democratic furniture. And there will be members of his party who will know better. And the danger politically for them is that in this moment, when they know better, it becomes the verdict on their careers. They knew better and they did nothing. If this goes on much longer, he'll be burning Democratic furniture. Well, fuck yeah. I mean, he burned all the furniture, burned the furniture factory, burned the house down, burned the apartment complex down, burned it all down, burned the whole thing to the ground. So prescient, John Dickerson, very well done. But as we sit here today in October of 2021, and the vast majority of elected Republicans continue to abet 
actively or passively this insane, pernicious conspiracy theory. Do they know better? Well, and if they do know better, is there really going to be a penalty to do they care about their legacies? And is there going to be any kind of cost to this insane thing that we're witnessing? I say insane and deeply pernicious. So I'd like to engage in, I think, the reverse form of confirmation bias, which okay. is I would like to think that what I meant was the cost in the like cosmic sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I think it's fair to think that either a it sounded like or maybe I even believed at the time so much has happened to make me not believe this. I'd like to think I had. But I thought there might be an actual cost that you would get penalized for not speaking out. No, it's become the purchase price of future success in the party that you either outright deny that Joe Biden won the election fair and square or that you play footsie with that idea to maintain viability in the party. I mean, Chris Wallace recently on Fox tried to get Congressman Steve Scalise to admit that Joe Biden had won in 2020 in the election and he wouldn't do it. Here you have a leadership of the Republican Party in. Uh, so I think that cosmically, I yeah. think that in a democratic in these United States, in our government, to have a president lying about the sanctity of the election. I mean, the elections that adjudicate our disputes are sort of the foundation of this whole business we're involved in. Mm. And to have not stood up to try to protect that when it was assaulted by him, I think, is a stain on those who knew better. And they know better now. They know better today. Right. So I think it's a cosmic stain. But I think politically in the party, all of the evidence is that you will pay a severe penalty if you say it out loud. Right. And it's getting worse. I mean, there is an effort to disappear what happened on the 6th. Yes. To, it's to, cast, it, I mean, to cast it as a positive thing. The president cast it as a, as a great day for patriots who are standing up to what he calls the real big lie, which is that the election itself is the real big law. He's like now turned them into heroes. Right. And they're turning those people who've been arrested for taking American flagpoles and trying to beat cops to death. He calls them heroes. He's trying to turn them into martyrs. And, and you see Mike Pence, for example, who the president put a target on his back by asking him to do something he had no power to do right. to the point where some of those supporters were saying, hang Mike Pence. And Mike Pence is now saying, well, discussion of the 6th of January is just a way to be mean to Trump supporters, yeah. which is taking an instance in which he was being threatened and slotting it into what we heard a lot during the last election, which was if you were critical of Donald Trump because he was abusing some of the basic standards of democratic process, right. you were being mean to his supporters which yeah. is a dodge and not the case. So everybody's kind of getting further and further away from the 6th of January. And I think that that is one of the great challenges we face now because the attributes that are required to do that are self-actualizing, which is to say people are engaging in this behavior without Donald Trump having to get on the phone to call them and say, please. Correct. And so yes. when your own ambition is hooked up to those negative attributes, you develop a situation in which that becomes the new way of politics for that party. And Donald Trump doesn't have to run again. Right. Those are all still now in place. So I'll say the following things. One, to your, to your point about cosmic stains, I mean, you're a Christian man, I believe, a practicing Catholic, and occasionally I will see something I've never done in my life, which is to uh, quote a Bible verse and something I've written. I've written. I look at that and I always go, what's going on with Dickerson? He does that sometimes. It freaks me out. But I think what you mean is that there's a moral stain on some of these people in addition to a cosmic stain. Like they're, I know you would never say they're, quote, evil, but this rises to the level of moral transgress. At least it does to me, even though I'm not a religious man like you, I think there's a moral uh, that that is the price they're going to pay. Not a political price, but there's a moral stain that corresponds to the cosmic stain. And you don't have to be religious. You just can be a person who cares about America and go back to the yeah. founders yeah. and look at the founder who was the one who was most admired. It was George Washington. And he was 
so admired because what everybody could depend on and use him as the model for the presidency was that he would do the right thing when no one was looking. Right, okay. Right. And that even if his political motivations wanted him to go some other way, they knew he would have virtue that would be a guard against the perniciousness of ambition. So you don't have to be religious. You just have to. Yeah. And there's a wholesale looking the other way. And we saw it during the Trump administration. And okay, that's its own thing. But now you have members in the Department of Justice who say, no, no, he repeatedly called to get us to try to do something illegal. Yes. Then you have members of the Republican Party saying, well, you know, he didn't do it in the end. So it's okay. Right. right. You right. Know, so right. the murder right. didn't happen, but his repeated planning for it, right. well, that's okay. As if attempted murder isn't a crime. I mean, that, right. I'll tell you guys, you guys should consult your uh, your federal penal code there. You'll, you'll find out very quickly that attempted murder actually is a crime. And by the way, as you and I know from having covered the Republican Party for so long, this used to be what lots and lots of voters and, and politicians talked about was the necessity yeah. of a moral code and standards at the center of your political life, because it was such a challenge, you would have to maintain those moral standards and codes. And so to hear them just cast aside so easily, or then the next step, which is the creation of excuses for moral failings and shortcomings, which are no little tiny quibbles or problems or peccadilloes. These are right. big ones. Yeah. These are huge and go to the center of the democratic experiment to see a new culture of coming up with excuses for them is our current challenge. People constantly ask, you know, when are they going to have their have you no decency, sir, moment? And my answer is never. They have no decency, sir. That's the thing. Here's my question. I want to ask you this. Here's a yes, no question. And then there's <laughs> going to be another question on the other side. The yes, no question is, do you agree with the notion that because of all of this, the big lie, the behavior post-insurrection, everything we've just talked about and the knock-on effect of that, which is, you know, these restrictive voting rights bills across the country, all this stuff that's happening. Do you agree that the stakes of the elections in 2022 and 2024 is, in fact, American democracy itself. I think it's sufficiently on the line to treat it as if it is, because okay. it's going to be too late if it ain't, if you don't do it. OK, so if that's true. Then this is the real question. And this is I keep saying we'll get back to Joe Biden, but I think this is the central thing. You know, midterms and reconciliation and infrastructure, these are all important things. But in the end, yeah, those are the stakes of our politics now. The way history is going to write about the Biden presidency is going to be. Did Joe Biden defeat Donald Trump in 2020 and pull American democracy back from the brink? Or was it a Pyrrhic victory in 2020 and he was not the man for the job and that Donald Trump comes back into office in 2024 or there are other forms of autocratic tendencies that through other vehicles? But is if that's the question, really, that history will ask about whether Joe Biden was a savior, held the line for democracy or whether he let the line go and lost it for us, how do you think he's doing on that? Well, it, it depends how you see that problem getting solved. Part of a restoration of the norms and practices that have held the government together is just to do them. You know, in other words, to go through the messiness of legislation and have and find a result. I mean, if infrastructure passes with 19 Republicans, that will be proof that you can get things done through this system. If some amount of the president's Build Back Better agenda passes, it will be proof that the system works in some fashion, as messy as it may be. And that may be sufficient to take a little bit off of the apocalyptic fever of the moment. That's maybe one way to do it. The other way to do it is to recognize that the structure of our politics is what's ruining our politics and to start offering things like, you know, expanding the Supreme Court or getting rid of the filibuster. 
I think you can reach a series of those or offer a series of those solutions. The problem is whether that actually solves the problem or just mm. creates a reciprocal set of uh, that exacerbates it because nobody's going to say, oh, well, you got the filibuster and did the things you want. Now we're just going to acquiesce to them. They will react more strongly. And then I guess finally, the question is, Joe Biden is certainly tonally much different than Donald Trump. And people recognize and feel that even if they don't like his policies. The question is whether he gets any credit for that and whether the crisis that comes for the next presidential election is one that people, because they've forgotten the lessons of the past and because they have an unrealistic expectation of the presidency, they think it's something other temperamentally than Joe Biden. That you can't tell until we get there. So I think we don't know right now. But I would the argument of the Biden presidency was that he would have the right people in place and that a commitment to doing government the right way would lead to better days. You know, right now, inflation, Afghanistan, whether he deserves the blame for them or not, in the crude and dumb way these things get worked out, that thesis is not being borne out. And I think in some cases, the Afghanistan criticism he gets is really sloppy. But nevertheless, this is the crude way in which we evaluate presidents. And right now, the promise of the Biden presidency has not been seen in the results so far. Right. Again, it's all too soon to say, I guess. Of course. I want to get to George right now. So I'll just all just say that one big speech about voting rights has not, in my judgment, been enough. And, and I would say that given that it, it's the thing that hovers over everything else as these states are seeking ways to prevent people from voting who they don't want to vote and then seeking ways to manipulate the outcomes on the other side of the vote. I think like, you know, I get why it's not center stage. I get that these other big things are more important and more tangible in people's lives. But I have to say, you know, if the voting process is corrupted in states across the country, it's the thing that arches over everything and undergirds everything simultaneously. And so I I wish that there was more focus on it from the White House, because I think it's not a partisan issue and it's the the existential key to everything, you know? Right. Well, and then it it depends whether you think a president can actually move the needle on that kind of an issue. And that's I mean, I I don't want anybody listening to misunderstand my criticism of Biden, because I think most of the ways we criticize presidents are totally wrong. (laughs) I think that he gets criticized on Afghanistan for the mistakes of the previous presidents. And that's cockamamie. And it embeds in the evaluation of a president certain failure for future presidents. So you know, I wrote a whole book about this. And yes, I, you but did. I, but I think to your very smart, narrow question, which is the immediate one, that was the way in which I was thinking about evaluating his presidency. And yeah. on your point about voting rights, you're right, because that's the way in which it all gets locked in. And then people kind of look up and go, oh, wait, you mean all the battleground states have election officials who are all picked from the party that was in power in those states? Gosh, yeah. that seems not right. Yeah. God, I wish we, I wish we hadn't, hadn't let that happen. You should have probably talked about that a couple of years ago. So, you know, the Dickerson issue is we've talked about the writing, we've talked about the television, we've talked about the books. We, you know, I didn't even time to get to all three of the books. There's three of them. One of them is about the office of the presidency. And I'm sure you've got another book underway and you've got some Paramount Plus. You've got to have a streaming program that you're making because everybody's making a streaming program, including both of my dogs, you know, like the whole thing. Or so I should say, I, just, I literally just had like, a, that was a, a lapse. I only have one dog now. And that's the point of our next discussion. But you also have a podcast. Of course you do, because, you know, you wouldn't be a modern man. You wouldn't be a, a protean journalist, a man of your ambitions and disgustingly high energy if you didn't have at least one podcast, which is the Political Gabfest podcast. And there was an unusual one the other day back in September, I believe, when you talked about a piece you'd written in the Atlantic about your dog, George. So I want to just play that to set this up and then we'll talk about George on the other side. Gabfest listeners for the last five or so years have had a, an additional member of um, our side of the, this um, 
party we have every week who you didn't know about, which who is my dog, George, particularly during the pandemic. He was always in here when I recorded. George died while I was away. Um, he was hit by a driver. Um, and I wrote a piece about it in The Atlantic that came out uh, on Thursday. Every writer who has a dog when the dog dies feels like they have to write about the dog. And so I was nervous about doing that. But it has been such an emotional thing for our family that um, uh, what could I do? So the piece you're referring to is a piece you wrote in The Atlantic that came out in September. That podcast appeared on the day that the piece appeared. The the piece was called Every Dog is a Rescue Dog, saying goodbye to George. And in order to avoid the thing that I hate people doing when you talk about loss or talk about your dogs, I'm not going to talk about my experience right now. I'm just (laughs) going to ask you first. You know, when we, when I when I was going to ask you to come on here, I said, you know, Hey, can we talk about George? It's really the thing I, reason I wanted you to come on was because I read this piece at a time that was meaningful to me because we had just lost one of ours. And I thought, Dickerson, I should talk about this on the podcast. And you said to me, I think I'm just about ready to talk about George. And I, it just hit me in the solar plexus because it was exactly how it felt in my circumstance. But before I talk about my circumstance at all. I want to hear about George and about writing the piece and the decision to write it because it's a very powerful piece and it's very emotional. It's not very long, but people have read it and been very deeply moved by it, I will say, among people I know, and it includes me. So please just talk about your experience with the guy and and writing about it. You're showing your incredible fingertip feel for other human beings because there is this thing that other people don't have, which is when they hear your dog died, they immediately tell you their story and they immediately send you the piece they wrote about it. And yeah. And you know what's really unsatisfying when you've just lost a dog is like that. And it's not, they, they have the best of intentions. Of They're, course they do. Of course like they do. we all do when faced with loss, we're not very good at it. No. And of course, this is the loss of a dog, which I'll get to in a minute, but it also is obviously, you know, a, a howling confrontation of our own finite days on the planet. First of all, I can't process, goes back to your question about writing. I can't process anything unless I write about it first. When I was coming up in television, I did Washington Week with Gwen Eiffel for a long time. On Fridays, I used to assign myself a story at Slate so that I would write through the story so I knew what I believed. So then when I went on TV that night, I would have something to say. So George died while we were out of the country, which added to its awfulness. He was lost for a long time from the kennel he went to where he had had a great time for the probably 25 times he'd been there before. And it was an awful and excruciating nine days. We um, we got the news and it was uh, my wife and son and I were together and and it was just, you know, a howling moment of awfulness. You'd had him for how long? We'd had him since November of 2015. I was moderating a debate among the Democratic candidates in Iowa when yeah. my wife and kids went and found him. He's a rescue dog from a hoarder house. He was always kind of skittish because he, he had been mistreated as a little dog. So I was thinking about what do I think about George? And I kept thinking about the walks that we went on, either George and me or or with Anne and sometimes with the kids, all the kids didn't often do it. But it was, you know, is this thing two or three times a day that we did that was a completely an act of selflessness for the dog, right? You're just doing something for the dog. And it got me thinking about those walks and about the unconditional nature of dog love and all the ways in which that pure love helps you get through your days and becomes a part of your days. And the way it had knit itself into our marriage, these walks that we would take together in the morning and the evening and what we would talk about and how George would interact with them And then it knits its way into your family, how the kids, you know, teenagers don't have a lot of deep conversations at the dinner table. But when George was jumping up on the table trying to get 
you know, the last piece of salmon, everybody had a view and everybody kind of had permission to be goofy and fun. And it created this communal space of conversation in the family that never would have existed otherwise. And when he was gone, you start to feel these huge pockets of emptiness that were filled up by the dog that you didn't even recognize before. And it was essentially a piece about all of that and realizing what kind of that says to you on your larger walk in life, which isn't just walking the dog, but, you know, walking through this world. And I still, I mean, my wife and I can see when the other is thinking about the dog, because you're not just thinking about the dog in this pure relationship of love, but you're thinking about yourself and your own relationships and all kinds of other things, which become enormous very quickly. And it hits you out of the blue. That is all captured in the piece and captured extraordinarily well. And I and I come back now to the reference that I made. You know, we, Diane and I have, have had a series of Great Danes that have been with us for years and years. And because of the pandemic, we had an older dog whose name is Fife, a younger one whose name is Dizza, and they both got on television a lot in the pandemic and, and they developed kind of a public following. And they were kind of, you know, they're Great Danes, they're striking dogs. And Fife was a particularly beautiful creature, you know, and and people got attached to them. And when Fife passed away, this we had to put him down. And luckily, under our control, I would do the idea of having a dog that got hit by a car or something. I, it, it, I Every day when I walk the dogs, I'm afraid somehow in New York City that something's going to happen and I'm going to be responsible for having let the dog get hit. It's like I walk through life with a terror about that. But I, I couldn't talk about it for a, a while. And eventually, I decided that I had to because I wanted to process it in the way that you're talking about. I have an incredible photographic collection around these dogs. And so I thought, okay, I'll post something on Instagram about it and try to express it there and also kind of let people know who are constantly asking, when is your dog going to be on TV again? And I wrote about it while we were on vacation up in Maine in August. And the first post I put up, I mean, I expected there to be some people who would react, but the reaction was off the fucking charts. I mean, it was, you know, 13,000 likes and thousands of people writing their stories about their, you know, writing in various ways to express sympathy, to say they just love to look, they thought Fife was badass, or to tell the stories about their dogs. I had all of the following reactions, one of which is that first one that we both share, which is, if I told you that my kid died, now I don't think dogs are kids. I want to be clear. I'll get to that in a second. But if I told you my kid died, would you be like, let me tell you, oh, the right answer to that is, hey, I'm really sorry to hear that. How are you doing? Not, you know, let me tell you about my experience with this. And I don't, I, I understand why they have the best intentions. So it's not like I'm, I'm, I get it, but it's a little, you know, just like, just be a little thoughtful about this, but people really have a lot of grief to process. And that's the main thing that I, that as I read through almost all these responses on Instagram, I realized how many people there were who have, not that I didn't know this, but it was very palpable to read the responses. And I'll ask you about your, the response to your piece about George is just, it was overwhelming how much by my expressing the particulars of our grief in losing this dog that meant the world to us, how many people were like now engaged. That's why they were doing that thing of citing their own experience. Yeah. Not to be in some way cruel or solipsistic or self-centered. They were just, they hadn't really processed it fully. Like you were giving voice to their grief in a way that maybe they couldn't. And it was kind of stunning to me. Again, not, not that I didn't know dogs are important. I mean, like that's not breaking news in our family, but it was amazing to me the depth and the passion and the visceral kind of reaction that that writing in a particular way, even that very limited form on Instagram, although the pictures really help, how much it touched people, you know, and, and I, I don't know, I'm still trying to process it in some ways. Yeah. Well, I think one of the reasons we write, one of the reasons writing is 
powerful to people is you feel seen and known and heard. And what people are expressing when they're reading your Instagram page is they feel in community with you. Yeah. And because they do, they know what you're going through yeah. and they're still processing what they went through. And one of the ways you get through, whoa, is to share it with somebody. Totally to have somebody lighten the load and the load stays with you. And so an opportunity to lighten it by sharing their experience with you, you are in a fellowship where you can, you know, by expressing your grief and demonstrating it, it's helping people say that their grief was okay or feel like they have a connection to another human being across a very tender set of feelings, which makes you feel human and alive. And so, that's all going on. Yeah. And I also found people who responded and said, just thank you for giving me something moving to read. And I was reminded, even though this is why we do what we do, and it does tend to feel more true with writing, although obviously there's television pieces that do this too, but is that people want to be connected to the human experience. And you can go through an entire day and sort of barely dip into humanity. And a trip down into the really the basic part of life, which is the finitude of it, and then a trip back out, which hopefully that piece did, you know, you don't get that a lot. And so that's what they're kind of going into when they're feeling it through you. And they've got connections with you anyway, because they see you, they like what you do on TV. And so they feel in a way like they know you. And so that deepens that feeling, which makes you just feel alive and connected to another human being. Do you agree with me? Something that I feel very strongly about dogs and, and some dogs more than others. I do think there's like, these are not, all dogs are not created equal. And we've had many dogs and, and they've all been great and we've loved them all. We love all of our children, so to speak. Although I really just hate the phrase fur babies. It makes me crazy when people, I'm like, I love my dog more than you can imagine, but my dog is not a baby and dressed in fur. Okay. It's a dog. Okay. We've had many dogs and they've all been wonderful. But every once in a while, you get a special one, you know, they're just, they were a little different and they have a different kind of connection to you. But I would say of all of them, the special ones more so, the less special ones less so maybe, but all of them have this consistent thing. It feels to me like they do in some ways make us better people. And I think that's not true. I'm not going to say uniformly true and to different, there are bad people in the world who probably have dog and but won't be improved much by them. But I feel as though there is a thing among dog owners who are serious about their relationships with their dogs, which is a lot of them that the kind of communion they have with their dogs, the amount of time they spend with them, the ways in which their dogs kind of exemplify and typify the best things that we should aspire to. There's that selflessness that they have, that devotion, that empathy, I do believe is a true thing, that they have that kind of intuitive native empathy. These are things that, you know, we would all do well to, to pay more mind to and to be more aspirational towards. And in that sense, I think that the relationships that we have with our dogs really can, maybe not necessarily, but can and often do make us better people. Absolutely. And it's a routine nature of it. I mean, in other words, it's a routine. When you walking a dog is a routine of your day that puts you in touch with all those feelings you're talking about. I can't remember whether I wrote this in the piece or I edited it out in the end or whatever. But I mean, if dogs had just been invented, there would be like self-care dog centers next to every Starbucks, because it's a daily regimen of that selflessness you're talking about, or just being in the neighborhood of that. And it's repaid to you by the ways dogs behave, which is like, you're the greatest thing they've ever seen the minute you walk in the room, even if you're not feeling like the greatest thing in the world. And that's not a bad thing to be in touch with. And imagine if you could convey some of that to someone else, Yes, man, you'd be an angel walking the earth. Yeah. I, I don't 
spend a lot of time talking about this, but you know, Diana got really sick in 2019, had a very, very severe, very serious case, a cancer diagnosis, and had to have a very, very significant surgery that was successful and she's now fully healthy, but it was a big surgery and it was very, uh, very tough recovery. And for months we had nurses living in our house, taking care of her because it's like, it was a months long recovery, really a year long recovery to get her really totally back to normal. And I watched Fife, the, the dog of ours that passed this summer, a dog that had started out as a kind of terrorist as a puppy and had gradually grown into a role of being the protector of our pack and had gradually kind of gained a sense of empathy. I watched him as he saw her vulnerability. I watched him transform in adulthood before my eyes. And he had a relationship in this house with the people who were staying here to try to help Diana recover. That was kind of incredible just to behold. He was at her side for months and would guard the bed that she was in. And when a new member of the nursing staff would show up, he would not let them in for a period of time. He would vet them in the living room for a period of time. And when he finally was satisfied that they were okay and they weren't a threat, he would let them kind of go in and do their work. And then eventually after that, he would work with them. And I just, I, I was really, I mean, flabbergasted by this behavior because I wasn't projecting this behavior. I was watching it happen. Yeah, You know, it was like, it was a real thing. And I thought the dog was adapting to a moment of need. It wasn't just the kind of ambient sort of I'm selfless. I love you. I kiss your face all the time. This was like a dog that over time changed its conception of itself and what its jobs were. You can yeah. watch this dog over its life. It was totally adaptive to our needs. Yeah. And I, I just, I find that incredibly inspiring and kind of miraculous and, and really true. I mean, Diana would tell you if she were on this podcast right now, she's like, I don't think I would have made it through my recovery without Fife. And, and I believe that's probably right. That's amazing. And it rings totally true. And it becomes, you know, they then become and embody all of these powerful emotions of what that's like and what it was like to have a, a dog there to care for her and, and all the vulnerability you were feeling and the kind of, you know, when you're freaking out, having just the steady, calm attention of a loving pet is like grounding and kind of can get you through some of those dark moments. That's, that's incredible, that story. One of the things in your piece that really also resonated with me was this notion of like what it is like now in the house without him here. And it's like, you know, it's been now a decent chunk of time, a couple of months, right? But you still look up and there's like these moments where you're like, I expect Fife to come around the corner. Like, you know, yeah. so much of the rhythm of the house, again, especially I'll tell you with Great Danes because they're so big, they're so yeah. human. Like it's a 150 pound dog. It's like bigger than my wife. It's like their absence. You know, I mostly now understand that he's gone, but there are times when I come home and walk in the door and I have the sense thing of like, it, it's just going to be there. Right. And and it's weird that it's lingered this long. Cause again, I've had some other dogs that we put down where it hasn't lasted as long as this one has, but I wonder how you're experiencing it now and the continued echoes in the hall of George that he leaves with you guys. Yeah. Well, you feel it in all these ways, as I was saying that you didn't quite know you felt it. I mean, the way he would come down in the morning only when Anne got up, not when I got up, but when she got up, there was a very specific rhythm to the way he entered the day. And so there are the sounds and that are no longer in our life that you still feel like you hear or that you miss hearing. But then the other night we were, we just moved apartments. And so you could imagine the new apartment would not have those sense memories, but we were sitting down to read at twilight and it was just the kind of moment that if he were in another room and we were sitting down to read, he would come into the room and jump up on one of our laps. And so the fact that he wasn't there to do that, even though it was a new context and everything, there was no reason to expect him to be there. We both did. So we're discovering all these new places that that he's 
not in. And, you know, there are definitely times where we, where I want to call out to him yeah. and, <laughs> and, you know, luckily for us, his younger brother is still here. And I, I have no idea how we would have like gotten through it without at this moment, if we did not have a dog in the house, I would have, you know, I probably would have slipped into despond, but I encourage you if you're not already considering, you must be considering getting another dog. Don't do the thing of like, well, you know, I don't know. We could, we could ever replace him or we have to wait for us. It's just, you know, like you gotta be right. We gotta be ready for it. But when, as soon as you're ready for it, go get another dog. You know, we're getting there. Yeah, we're, we're getting yeah. there. And particularly my wife, who was a little more reluctant. So uh, George will have a, a mate in our lives uh, at some point, And it'll be it'll be good. We've moved to that stage, which is good. It's great to see you today, man. It's been a while. It's been a while since we had a chance to really talk. And it's uh, I'm, I'm reminded yet again what a delight it is to converse with you about a wide variety of topics on almost anything, really. And you look well. Well, thank you, John. And you, too. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to John Dickerson for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman, Grace Weinstein, is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineer the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Russell that man is our executive producer. 